Hello, everyone, and welcome along to this week's Borderline podcast with me, Gareth Soy, here on Grip. And this week, I am sort of at a loss for words because it's the first time, honestly, I've ever been really nervous doing this because I have the best guest possible. Hello, Kevin Marr. Well, that's an astonishing introduction, but uh, I hope I can live up to even half of the description you just, just uh, accorded me. I, Kevin, there's... There's a lot of doubt in the world, but I have zero doubt that you will be able to do that. So, first of all, none of us have heard for you in ages, so most important thing, how the hell are you? I'm well. I mean, I actually enjoyed uh, the lockdown because uh, I'm used to being by myself. I've withdrawn from the world as, the, as was the intention of most of the Irish media and indeed the media around the world on the foot of a series of lies that are without precedence and without any subsequent comparison in in the history of Irish journalism. What did was done to me three years ago this month has to be one of the darkest episodes in the history of Irish journalism, one of the most degrading, one of the most humiliating and one of the most unprincipled. And the point was uh, they wanted to do what they actually achieved. Um, that is to say, they have largely silenced me. I, I, I do work for a couple of websites around the world, but within the Irish media, to all extents and purposes, I am gone. But that was that's fine uh, in the sense that I, I do a lot of writing and thinking, and that when the lockdown came, um, I was mentally prepared for it in the way that most people wouldn't have been. So the, the month of May was one of the most glorious months of my entire life, um, and I think a lot of people would have shared the pleasure I had in enjoying bird life and watching the insects and seeing the migrating birds coming in from Africa and the Mediterranean. I saw a chiff chaff and a, a willow warbler in May, which I'd never normally have seen. And I watched the butterflies and had a very good time. And I've been doing a lot of writing. So uh, I am extremely well in myself because um, I'm very happy with my, my life, with my wife, Rachel, and our dogs. So you're talking to a man who is um, very content. Thank you very much. Excellent. Well, that's that's really good to hear. Um, you know, there's a. I try to get this podcast. I try to get a lot of people in the UK to listen to it, and I have brought brought up what happened to you before. Um, on it to, to try and you know because a lot of people are are sort of unaware of what happened to you, and it's still in my mind at least it's it's just I I find it difficult to describe. It's it's unbelievable how it happened what did happen, it started, you know, the only, the only parallel, and I don't mean to be facetious or anything, the only thing I can try and explain to people when I say it, it's much like the RHI scandal in Northern Ireland, where the farmers were being paid to heat the outside air, it literally makes as much sense as that does. You know, in your, so in your word, what happened you, describe to our listeners who aren't familiar with it, just exactly what happened, because I'm sort of at a loss towards to describe it. It never ceases to amaze me. Yeah, it would have appeared in my um, memoir, which has been repeatedly delayed, first of all, by my uh, libel action against RTE, which I won, and um, then subsequently by the coronavirus. It would have appeared two years ago. Uh, I, uh, three years ago, at the end of this month, I was invited by the Sunday Times, the Irish tradition of the Sunday Times, to um, write about the, the BBC pay... Uh, differentials between men and women. And uh, I had said, no, I don't want to do write about that. I, 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 I proposed three other topics. Uh, 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 and they said, no, no, we really want you to write about 
um, this issue. And I didn't know very much about the BBC and I did some research and I found that um, there was indeed a differential between the, what men were getting and, and women were getting. And I wrote a column which was ill-advised, uh, I accept. It was um, not ill-intentioned and the, the purpose of um, any observation, any newspaper article, uh, must really, uh, its assessment must be what is the intent of the journalist. And I said, and I've always accepted it was a foolish thing to have said, I noted that the two best paid women in the BBC uh, were both Jewish. And I said, that suggests to me that these women are highly intelligent. It was meant to be a compliment. Uh, it is within the Jewish tradition, I haven't got the words in front of me, uh, to, to be adept in such matters, and it would be foolish of them not to seek the highest pay, and they've done a very sensible thing, and I congratulated them. This was filed on a Thursday. My filing time is normally on a Friday. So it was filed nearly 24 hours before filing time. It was read by two people in Ireland, two editors in Ireland, and it was read, read by three editors in London. No one saw any reason um, to stop it. Now, one reason is that I am known within the Irish media as being perhaps uh, the most um, convinced supporter of Israel in, in Irish journalism in the last two decades. I have also uh, written more about the Holocaust than any other Irish journalist ever. It's not a kind of an occasional thing, as the Jewish community have uh, attested and insisted. Uh, nobody has written as often as I have about the, the Holocaust. So my column appeared on the appeared online shortly after midnight on July the thirtieth, um, two thousand and seventeen, and almost immediately there was an online frenzy, and I have never been able to explain how this could have happened. I was in West Cork um, at that morning, and I was awoken at eight o'clock. No, I was actually up. Uh, I was. I got a phone call from my page editor shortly before nine o'clock to say there was uh, bedlam on the internet over my column, and uh, I had no idea what it was. I, I had made a few remarks about um, uh, critical remarks of about Jeremy Vine, who is grotesquely overpaid. And I assumed it was a, my critical remarks about him that would have caused the uproar, but um, it wasn't that. It was my remarks about the, the Jewish women. Um, the headline, over which I have no control, it's one of those things that newspaper columnists are frequently enraged by, the, 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 the sight of a headline that they had never seen before over an article, and quite often the headline is wrong. And in this case, it was both wrong and inflammatory. The headline said... Sorry, girls, um, equal pay has to be earned. Well, at no point was I talking about equal pay. I was talking about unequal pay, and I wasn't talking about earning. I was talking about negotiating. You get big money by demanding big money. Anyway, uh, that is certainly uh, the lens through which a great many people read the, the article, and uh, they immediately lit on the, the reference to the two Jewish women as being, as in, uh, invoking the, 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 the cliche of Jews being good at uh, money and so on and so forth. Well, as it happens, Jews tend to be good at lots of things, not just money. 
uh, we know, uh, and I, this was in the back of my mind at the time, that the Jewish population, which constitutes 0.2% of the world's population, also uh, constitute 22% of the world's Nobel Prize winners. So the, the, the fact that the Jewish people are an exceptional people is known to all of us. And I think my page editors were aware that I was extremely pro-Jewish and extremely pro-Israel. Anyway, the article appeared, and by nine o'clock in the morning, with the headlines going around the world on social media, um, my career was, I now know, uh, dead. Uh, very soon afterwards, I was sacked publicly by the Sunday Times, and um, the editor of the Sunday Times made an announcement that I would never be employed by the Sunday Times again. Uh, that was bad enough. No journalist in, in, in my knowledge has ever been so publicly humiliated and so publicly uh, disgraced, and irreversibly so, it, without anyone talking to me. Not one single uh, person in the Sunday Times asked me what was going on and why I, had I written that. All that was bad enough. That was just the beginning, however, uh, of an unfolding um, cavalcade of, of hatred and misrepresentation. Somebody dug out a column that I had written a decade before um, disputing uh, the right of people to imprison Holocaust deniers. Now, I think that anyone who denies the Holocaust is an idiot. But uh, m most of the, uh, the murder of Jews in um, 1941, essentially, to 1945 was done not by within the gas chambers, but by individuals, by German and Austrian troops, by Spanish and Italian troops also, by Romanians, and also by locally recruited auxiliaries, Ukrainians and Latvians and Lithuanians. Maybe two million Jews were killed, murdered, in the concentration camps, two and a half, which that leaves about three million or so who were murdered by hand. And if you talk about the Holocaust and conveying the image that somehow that it was industrialized murder, which makes it quite simple, you are and, uh, um, still unbelievably deadly um, and evil, but you're actually excusing all those German infantrymen and Austrian infantrymen and Romanians and Italians and, and Spanish and, and the auxiliaries of the personal responsibility for murder. This is one of the greatest crimes, perhaps the greatest crime in world history. Nothing compares with it. That tens of thousands of Germans and others were complicit in personally murdering Jews day in and day out, day in and day out. And in that context, I said I was a Holocaust denier because most Jews were not murdered in Auschwitz or Magikonek or, or, or Sobibor, uh, but they were murdered by hand. And somebody dug that column up from 10 years before and used the term Holocaust denier to pretend that I, in fact, was a Holocaust denier when, in fact, I'm a Holocaust attester. And not merely uh, have I written more about the Holocaust than any other journalist in Ireland. I know more about the Holocaust than any journalist, just about any journalist in Ireland. That didn't make any difference. That then became I was a Holocaust denier and an anti-Semite. Now, I assumed based on my knowledge of Irish journalism, that people would say, well, hold on, this is not true. You can't call this man a Holocaust denier and an anti-Semite and a misogynist, that's the other allegation, um, without any basis. But that didn't happen. 
that nobody said that. Uh, on the Monday, the newly appointed Tisha Leo Varadkar uh, denounced me as an anti-Semite and a misogynist. And so did the, uh, that Tisha is for, for, the, for your foreign listeners, uh, that's the Irish term for prime minister. And the deputy prime minister, the Thornister Francis Fitzgerald, um, also joined in the denunciations of me as a Holocaust and oh, sorry, as misogynist and uh, an anti-Semite. The last time I had met Francis Fitzgerald, uh, we had exchanged kisses, and the previous time, I had been given the address at St Patrick's Cathedral on Remembrance Sunday, where I was making the keynote address, and one of the things I did was to re record the names of Irish women who gave their lives in the fight against the Third Reich. And I, I, I named um, a, a young Jewish volunteer who went by the war name of Michael O'Hara as an example of how the Jews of Europe regarded the Irish as one of their liberators. And Michael O'Hara was captured uh, in Austria in, in 1945 and murdered. His real name was Friedrich Berliner. But he chose an Irish uh, war name, pseudonym, as a cover. And I thought he was a suitable example for me to be giving a talk in, on, some, uh, on Remembrance Sunday. And Francis Fitzgerald at the end of the talk came over to me, shook my hand and said, thank you very much for mentioning the women. Now, nobody who's a Holocaust denier or an anti-Semite is ever invited to a public ceremony to commemorate the dead of the Second World War. I was. But that made no difference to the destruction being wrought on my good name in the newspaper columns of Ireland and in the, the many radio discussion programs that were on, on almost just every single airwave over the succeeding days. Um, the Irish Times had... I think 10 columns denouncing me and Irish independent newspapers in all had about 20 columns denouncing me, all of them based on the, the lie that I'm a Holocaust, uh, that I'm a misogynist and the, the other lie that I'm anti-Semite. Vincent O'Toole in the Irish Times was allowed to have two columns attacking me over four days. He, he has never, to my reasonably certain knowledge, ever attacked one individual so so close together in such vehement and um, unregenerate terms and ungenerous terms, I have to say. The, the intro, he called me a misogynist, of course, and he said if, um, I, if I had stuck to misogyny, of course, um, I would still have a career because there's always such a market for misogyny in Irish life. But I had made the, the fatal mistake of attacking Jews, which I hadn't have done, of course. Now, if I was a misogynist, Sometime over the previous 20 years, as a newspaper columnist, he would have surely adverted to that. He would have alleged that I was a, uh, that I was a misogynist. He never did once, not once in the previous 20 years. Yet, at that week, he attacked me twice as a misogynist, and then other columnists joined in. And by that time, I was a global phenomenon, the worst kind of brand you could possibly seek for a, a journalist, because I was all these things, a misogynist, an anti-Semite, and a Holocaust denier. And it went round and round the world. I was lead story across the world. The BBC 
uh, on the Sunday had made the lead story. The second item on, on that Sunday was uh, North Korea firing a ballistic missile over Guam. But Kevin Myers, misogynist and anti-Semite, got uh, precedence over that. So that's a measure of the madness that destroyed my reputation internationally uh, three years ago this month. Okay. I mean, I just, I, I'm continually at loss for words for it because it was such a lie. It was such a blatant lie. It was such an easily provable lie, but it was still allowed to go on and literally nothing happened. But how, on a, on a personal level, how do you, how do you cope with this? I mean, me, this, this, this frightens me that this can happen to anyone not less someone who was as well known and and as respected in certain circles, obviously because you're not respected in 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 other circles. But you know, on a personal level, how do you how do you cope with this? The fact that you can be destroyed on a lie, on a very very easily provable lie, and all of the usual things which we rely on or which we think are there to save us from lies just don't exist you know them we hope well at least at least those of us who who are old enough or might remember when the media we would hope the media are there to search for the truth and fight for those who have been destroyed because of lies you know things like this the law would be on our side how do you how do you how did you cope with this on a personal level was it was it a really frightening time? Was it? I don't know. I mean, to me, it's frightening. And to you, well, what was it? Was, it? it was. It was worse than frightening because it was, as you described, all of the things you thought would come, the forces that you thought would come to your assistance, stayed silent, or they joined in the lynch mob. And this is actually how lynch mobs work. The most powerful vector in such circumstances is cowardice. Cowardice will cause people to join in the lynch mob or cowardice will cause people uh, to stay silent. But no one ever does anything decent when the motivation is cowardice. I, I should tell you, Rachel, who is a vital part of my life, um, and I, we got married in, in uh, 22 years ago. Over half of our, 24 years ago actually, over half of our wedding guests I never heard from at that time. I mean, half the people who would normally send me Christmas cards, we never heard, we never heard Christmas cards, got Christmas cards from then or thereafter. That you have a, a terrible clarity in life that nobody wants. You, 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 you realize that you have so few friends. Those few friends are friends and they're worth cherishing. And uh, the, but the rest are dross. And I think that's probably true for you, Gareth, and for almost all your, the people listening to you. Half of their people, the people they think to be are their friends, are not. People to whom I had done great favours said nothing. They might even have joined in. I should tell you, I mean, it didn't, this is not a short-term duration. I've written about this in uh, my memoir. Last year, I was with my agent, Jonathan Williams, in a hotel in, well, earlier on this year, actually, in, in Dunleary, and um, four Irish Times journalists, whom I knew when I worked with the Irish Times, um, and all four of them had left the Irish Times, 
came out of the dining room. I was sitting in the lounge having a cup of coffee with Jonathan and these, sorry, the three journalists who came out. And uh, I rose and introduced myself to, to them by name in case they might have forgotten my name. It's possible, you know, it's just a decent thing to remind people whom you have not seen in a decade or more who you are. And the first one, I put out my hand and the first one, as he walked by me, put out his hand and knocked my hand sideways. The next journalist did the same. The third journalist did the same. And this is a very public rebuttal of uh, an act of friendship by me. Now, by that time, I had become pretty acquainted with the sort of abuse that comes the way of the victim of a lynch mob. But that really did surprise me because these three men are men I would have said were decent and upright and loyal and true. And clearly on those circum in those circumstances and on that day, they were none of those things. These are decent men normally. But the mob had turned them into something else entirely. And I, mean, I, have, I should tell you that one of the, the illuminating things, almost enriching things about an event like that, is the key it gives you to human behavior. You, you don't want to have that key, but if you are given that key by the circumstances of life, it is worth having. That's why I have called my memoir when it does come out, and it's been repeatedly delayed, um, uh, burning heresies, because uh, it's all about heresies and what is burnt um, at the stake. Uh, by, as Shakespeare says um, in one of his plays, and I can't remember for the moment which one, one it is, it is, it is um, not the heretic that burns on the fire, it is he who sets the fire beneath the heretic. That's the true heretic. The person who lights the fire is the heretic. Because that, the person who, who burns a person at the stake is a person to whom all value and all decency are strangers. And that's what I learned um, three years ago. And thereafter, it's not as if it went away. It didn't, because the entire political establishment either stayed silent or joined in, and the broadcast media went hysterical with joy at my destruction and I hadn't realized how many journalists really detested me and uh, and they did and they really did and and still do so there's not much you can do about that in life no th no there, there's not of course the, the the completely ironic thing being that most of these journalists who who hated you and w try and did their best to to get rid of you used something else that they also hate because, you know, you write, no one in Irish media writes about Israel unless it's in a negative light. And most of these, most of these are, I'd say a hell of a percentage of the people who were trying to get rid of you, did their best to get rid of you, would normally, if given the chance, denounce Israel and Jewish people if, if for everything they could. But in this case, they were championing Israel and saying you were the anti-Semite, which is just, it, you know, once, once reality is able to be denied in such a way that it was with you, it's, it's the same as people, those people who you were talking about, you know, the Cardis. Cardis is caused through fear. These people control everyone else through fear. And, yeah, the you know, one people they didn't control were the Jewish people who... who, who who stepped forward, uh, you know, a man and woman and, and boy and girl just about stepped forward and said, this man is not an anti-Semite, he is our friend. They, uh, they, I have uh, addressed the Jewish Representative Council and the Jewish Historical Society 
Now, their invitation on three occasions since then, I'll be talking to them, I hope, this weekend in a, a Zoom uh, conference uh, that um, they have made me welcome. The Israeli ambassador just couldn't believe it. He took me out to lunch. He said, this is astonishing. This is absurd. It's, it is wicked. Uh, and he invited me to his home when he was moving off to Boston. So I was his personal guest. Israeli ambassadors do not invite anti-Semites to their homes. They do not take anti-Semites out for lunch. The Jewish Representative Council do not defend anti-Semites or Holocaust deniers. Morris um, Cohen of the Jewish uh, Representative uh, Council said, not merely is to call Kevin Myers a Holocaust denier a gross distortion of the truth, it's the opposite of the truth, because nobody has written as much about the Holocaust as Kevin Myers has done. Yet, as you said, Garrett, it didn't make any difference. Available truth was concealed in plain sight by my enemies throughout the media. And this was not something that I had any preparation for or any expectation of. I do know that the liberal left, and we are talking about the liberal left and nobody else, and we know the liberal left are, are irrational and hysterical, but I didn't actually realize they were so profoundly dishonest as to deny what is in plain sight. They saw, they knew what I could find, anyone can find, by just going into the Irish Times archive, typing three words, Holocaust and Kevin Myers. And a vast number of articles would immediately come up, going back to the, the, into the 1980s. Now, I am the man, and I can say this without any, any doubt or any equivocation or any contradiction. I am the man who began the campaign to commemorate the Irish involvement in the two world wars. And that the fact that the president is invited and attends St. Patrick's Cathedral is in large part due to my efforts. And President Higgins, the first event, event he attended as uh, president, in 2011 was St. Patrick's Cathedral when I was making the address and he applauded my words. Now, this is, this is something that's on the record. And indeed, uh, as others have observed, mine is the only address in St. Patrick's Cathedral, which of course is a religious ceremony, which has uh, been uh, awarded or rewarded with a, almost a standing ovation. It was unprecedented for my talk about the Irish fighting on behalf of the liberation of the Jewish people of, of Europe. Yet that, that man, that man who made that address in St. Patrick's Cathedral before the president of Ireland and before Francis Fitzgerald and before other political representatives was then turned into a Holocaust denier, an anti-Semite and a misogynist. Yeah, so you, have, you take this triangle, of, this trinity of truths, and turn them into untruths, and they remain untruths in, in, not in the popular perception, because I must tell you this also, ordinary people were appalled. They couldn't believe it. That ordinary people who knew what I am, both here where I live in near the, the town of Blessington and the town of Nason and the village of Ballymore Eustace, people coming over and shaking me by the hand and saying, this is monstrous, this is wrong. So, uh, uh, and uh, the, the, the official Ireland, the term that Eamon Dunphy very cleverly um, uh, allocated to that the, the, the small group of decision makers that reward one another and award one another um, uh, accolades of various kinds, they decided 
that I was all the, the things that I'm not and turn that into an official dogma. And that official dogma remains the, 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 the abiding creed, the doctrinaire uh, myth that, to which the media generally subscribe. And I'm invited only onto Ivan Yates' radio programme on News Talk, but um, all other items um, I'm excluded from. To the point in 2018 where somebody went onto the hard drive guest list for the annual day of commemoration, which was created to, to honour the Irish who died in all world wars and the uh, War of Independence in 1916 rising and so on and so forth, was largely created in response to my campaign that there should be a single a day to commemorate the, the various uh, causes and the various deaths of the, the tens of thousands of Irish men and women who died in the 20th century. That day was created in response to my campaign, yet the government deleted my name from the guest list in 2018 so that I was not invited. I was not present for that day, and I, 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 I make a point of principle every July to be present for that day. But in 2018, my name had been removed from the guest list, which was an act of a positive act. As I say, somebody decided to do that. It wasn't an omission. I was on the, 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 the list and I was deleted from the list. British Embassy, sorry, the British Legion was so appalled at that they made me an official member of their delegation uh, last year so that I was able to be present in the way that I wouldn't have been had it been left to the government of Ireland. It's, they control, you mentioned there, they control language. You know, you, you mentioned in, while we were talking, you mentioned lynch mobs. And, and I find it, you know, even a little bit scary now that because of what's recently going on, you know, the very fact that you use the two words lynch mob can be taken out of context from this whole thing and go, oh, my God, these two are racists because they brought up lynch mobs. I, you know, when they control language, black becomes white, white becomes black. Maybe that's even bloody racist to say that now. Who knows? You know, when they can control language, they control truth. It's just frightening. I mean, well, I mean you're, you're right. And this is what George Orwell said, and it's what he predicted, and it's, it's, it has now come true. The, what is interesting for me, and I, I can say this with a kind of clinical distance, is that what happened to me was, in fact, the, the, the forerunner, the precursor, uh, the scene setter of what's been happening in the world um, this year, this terrible, terrible year. You know, by, by a wide stretch, the worst year of the 21st century. And we are only in the beginning stages. We, I have said to other people that, you know, in terms of historical uh, comparison, we are, it was just about January 1933. And on January the 30th, 1933, Hitler came to power. And no one had any idea that what he was going to do, what he was going to do. I mean, it was that at that point, you would have said that the biggest threat to world peace uh, was communism and that Hitler was just a very nasty little corner boy who, whose career would come to an end because... He was too stupid and too violent and too ill-intentioned to get anywhere. But no, 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 we know exactly what he was capable of and what he, what, what he did. Now, we are in a, a comparable stage now that we are, um, we are unle forces that we have no control over have been unleashed on the world, that we are told that white men invented slavery and the blacks were the first slaves. Well, no, the first slaves... In, in Europe in Europe were called slaves because they were Slavs. 
The Roman Empire was built on slavery, so was the Greek Empire, and so, by the way, was the Zulu Empire. All empires are built on slavery up until the 19th century. Uh, the, the, um, the, the New Zealand Maoris imprisoned and enslaved one another and had genocidal wars in, uh, before the white man arrived. The same for the Aborigines. The Zulus arrived in South Africa from the Congo. The people who lived in, the, in, the, in South Africa, what we call South Africa, Nibia and Southwest Africa um, today, they were what we would call Bushmen or, or the Kai people, Kaisan people. Uh, and they were driven into the Kalahari Desert. They, they were originally living in the, the prosperous upland, the veldt of South Africa, and they were driven out by the, the Bantus, by the Khosas and the, the Zulus. Uh, and they were driven, they were exterminated and, and they were driven into extinction. All of the people who live in those terrible places like the Arctic and the Himalayas, they're driven there not because they chose to live in terrible places, because they were driven there by more successful people. And if they didn't flee, that they were enslaved. Enslavement was a norm across the world until the 19th century. And it's not a thing that was done by white men to black men. It's, it's what everyone did to everyone else. The Indian peoples of America enslaved one another. St. Patrick arrived in Ireland as a slave. Now, this, these are terrible notions that people could behave so badly, but they did. They have behaved badly throughout the existence of mankind. It's why we have the foundation myth of the Garden of Eden and of original sin, and that we left the Garden of Eden because we are a sinful species. And no one who, ever, who witnesses events in America today could doubt for one second that we are a sinful species. All of us are tainted with the sin of original sin. All of us are capable of murder and enslavement and atrocities and torture. All societies have done this, all peoples. There is no innocent person in this story. The narrative is unbelievably grim, but it embraces all of mankind. And I actually do mean the term mankind because the history of women doesn't lend me to believe that women are responsible for enslavement in the way that men are. Men are a much more violent species than, than are women. And, and I just seen, just by chance, I, I, I ambled into that, straight into that, uh, into that area. The, the corporate boss of Boeing, a man called Neil Golightly, has had to um, resign from Boeing. He was sacked from Boeing this week because someone discovered an essay he wrote when he was a flight lieutenant, sorry, a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy, uh, in 1989, and he, he, he wrote a, a paper for the United States Navy uh, magazine, which is a highly terrible uh, magazine, about whether women are suited for combat positions. And he, he wasn't arguing against women in, um, in armies or navies, but no, no the, the hard teeth of combat, where you, 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 you do fix bayonets, you do gouge out eyes, hand-to-hand uh, -hand fighting is really terrible. It's, I, I have witnessed some of it in, in Bosnia, and it's really unspeakable. He was saying that women are not suited for that, and they shouldn't be in, induced into, into frontline combat duties, not least because their presence uh, disturbs the cohesiveness of an all-male unit. That's what he wrote in 1989. This last weekend, someone discovered this article, and Boeing sacked him. And he, he said that he didn't even offer any defence. He said, I'm sorry, my opinions were wrong. I've offended people, and Boeing has done the only thing it can do. So this was like a Moscow show trial from the 1930s. People are pleading to be executed. The same thing happened to Jonathan Friedman of Netflix, who, who last year gave, was giving a seminar to his, his colleagues on, um, 
on offensive words. Now, I'm not going to use the word now because it could cause calamity for you. But he used the N-word, but he actually used the, 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 the full word. And I think there's nothing wrong with the word. Eddie Murphy uses it the whole time in his film. Anyway, he said, this is an offensive word. We shouldn't use it. His career was over. Not merely was his career over, he apologized. He said, I have let my company down. Um, I want my company to be tolerant and inclusive and uh, welcoming to all, to all except himself, because he was, he, not merely was he sacked, he applauded his own dismissal. But of course, Jerry Adams was able to use the word and, and nothing happened. Yes, Jerry Adams did. Yeah, no, the thing is, one of the, the most important, well, the most important philosopher we have in the world today, I think, is Thomas Sowell. Uh, he's an economist philosopher. He's, um, he's, he's my hero. He's 90 years of age. He is from North or South Carolina. He's black. Um, his family moved to Harlem when he was um, a young, a boy. He served in the United States Marine Corps during the Korean War. And he um, developed theories over the 1960s and 70s about the, 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 the ruinous results of the welfare state. These are theories to which I would now subscribe. I wouldn't have previously, but I do now. Um, and one of the, the points he makes is that there are in any society the anointed ones. And these can get away with um, all sorts of uh, extraordinary uh, departures from accepted norms because they're anointed. No one in Irish history has departed from accepted norms to the pathological and extravagant degree of Gerry Adams. Uh, the fact that he is closely associated with the abduction and murder of uh, G. McConville in 1982 made no difference whatever to his role in the peace process, to his eminence in Sinn Féin, or the fact that in Louth, when he was uh, standing as TD, he got twice the quota. That is to say, for your, for your outside listeners, he got twice the number of votes he needed to get to be elected. So that the people of, of Louth generally approved of his record as a senior member, IRA member, a man responsible for Bloody Friday and many other atrocities and the abduction, not personally, but certainly within the remit of his command of this widowed mother of 10 who was abducted from her children, uh, taken away, probably tortured uh, and buried secretly, and her children were never told what had happened to her. This is an unspeakable crime, but he's got away with it. I mean, he's been invited to Checkers. He's been invited to Downing Street. He's a guest of honor. He goes to the White House. The, uh, the mayor of New York a couple of years ago said St. Patrick's Day should be named St. Jerry's Day. This is beyond parody. Yet the same so the society that can acclaim Jerry Adams can, and uh, without any basis for acclamation, uh, can also denounce Kevin Myers without any basis for that denunciation. There isn't any way you can analyze this in ordinary uh, evidential terms. The ordinary rules of empiricism simply don't count here. You're dealing with a kind of witchcraft, a, a voodoo principle of assessment of a person's character, not on the evidence. Yeah, you're, you're dealing with a very insidious level of control, the way that people, some people, probably a lot of them sociopaths, can control others into just simple denying of reality. Simply look at that look at that wall in front of you. That's not white. That wall is black. And people will stand there looking at the white wall and go, yeah, okay, it's black because they're either afraid or 
I don't know what they are, but it's just this level of control that these sociopaths have over others. And, and it's, it's you know... If it were sociopaths, if it was just a question of sociopaths, they, they'd be, it'd be easy to isolate them and, and, and identify them and isolate them. It's not just sociopaths. Uh, this is totalitarianism, but it's volitional to 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 totalitarianism. That is to say, there isn't a state apparatus to make you um, uh, comply with the requirements of the new consensus. But the engine for this uh, compliance is cowardice. And uh, as I've discovered, cowardice is a far more powerful and um, ubiquitous vector uh, than you, one would normally expect. And you have to be at the center of it. And to see your friends walking away and never contacting you again, to see the number of Christmas cards halving, and the people, you know, I mean, I'd ring a person and they just didn't want to answer the phone. They, they realised it was me they were talking to. They tried to end the phone call as quickly as possible. These three Irish Times journalists walking past me, flicking my outstretched hand away. Yeah. Now, what is going on? This is a transformation of character that I wouldn't have expected, but it is what happens when you have a new totalitarianism arising. I imagine being in, in, in Moscow or St. Petersburg or Petrograd in 1917-18 or Berlin in 19 Munich, Frankfurt in 1933-34 would be comparable experiences. But on both occasions... The, the new to the totalitarians had taken over the state. The new totalitarians now operate through social media, and they are incredibly effective. We've seen the lunacy in, in England, and they reached from England, from America to England in days. Now, George Floyd, as we all know, was murdered, and there's no way of describing that other than second-degree murder, um, because uh, the, what was done to him was in intentional to to, 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 to to take him to the point of death. They might not have intended to push him over, but they, so with, they intended to damage him. With, with harm intended in it, yeah. Hardly intended harm. to. No, no, what they didn't no intend to do. They intended to take him as close to death as possible. You can't lean on somebody's neck um, like that. But um, I've forgotten this full name. Tony, Tony LaSalle or something like that in, uh, was killed in identical circumstances in Dallas three years ago. He was in trouble. He rang the police in a shopping mall in, in Dallas. He said, look, I'm a, I've, I've drunk too much. I'm having problems. I'm going to be a danger to myself and other people. Send a squad car. Squad car ca came along. The local, unbelievably, the local um, security company in the mall had, had already handcuffed uh, this man. The police arrived. Now, I've seen this on video. He's a white man. He's overweight. He's 25 stone. They... Um, 300 pounds or something like that. The, the police make him lie down on the ground and a policeman kneels on his back and he says, you're suffocating me. I can't breathe. The policeman doesn't move. And he said, are you okay, Tony? He said, no, I'm not. And the policeman stays on his back until he's dead. And I've seen this on video. And a, 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 a paramedic arrives and gives this dead man a sedative, which is too ludicrous for words. But everyone involved in this, apart from one of the policemen, uh, are white. So everyone is white. So the, there's no outcome. In, 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 in January this year, the police in Paris got a white man, uh, a delivery driver, and they did exactly the same thing. And he said in French to the policeman, I haven't seen this, but I have read an account of it. You're suffocating me. I can't breathe. The policeman was kneeling on his back. The man died. Two men died in identical circumstances to George, George Floyd. 
There wasn't a worldwide outcry. What was the what was the difference between George Floyd because it's white man and a black uh, black man? No, of the three four police officers, two of them were Asian and one was mixed race. And there was this mad lunatic man, Derek Chauvin, who had eighteen disciplinary offences against him and should never be allowed a policeman. He this wasn't a racial crime. This was a crime of simple, brutal uh, br police brutality. It's not a worldwide event. It shouldn't be a worldwide event. It's only in the insane circumstances which have come into existence because of the lockdown and the irrationality that has erupted everywhere that this has been turned into a world event, which has been uh, you know, almost like the Reichstag fire, being turned into an excuse for totalitarian expressions by Antifa in America and by Black Lives Matter. They're two different organizations, but they're working in harness together, just as the Nazi party originally in 1933 had an a, a alliance with a country, sort of semi-fascist movement and other minor right-wing units, whether well, we say right-wing, in fact, national socialists were socialists, they regarded themselves as left-wing. These terms left and right actually don't make much, there's no difference between them anymore. You either have totalitarians or you libertarians. I'm on the libertarian side of the argument. I think you are too. On the other side, on that far extreme, you've got the either communist or the Nazi concentration camp um, guards who have got us in their sights. They do want to destroy us. They, won't, they don't need to have concentration camps anymore. What they have is cancelling. What you have is... Um, university campuses which don't tolerate free speech, which don't even tolerate a sense of humour anymore. So you, it's, it is five years ago since a Yale um, lecturer and his wife lost um, their career and their, their living because his wife had written an essay on appropriate uh, ha uh, costumes for Halloween. And um, they were accused of cultural appropriation because... You know, somebody who's Irish could dress up as a Chinese man for China, and that means that they're insulting the Chinese and so on and so forth. So their careers were over. So I, I use that as an example of, of this is not a recent so, event. I, this kind of nonsense is, 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 has got, you know, a, a, a full decade of precedent, but now it's turned toxic. Now it's turned, well, in, to use another metaphor, it's, it's reached critical mass. Yeah. And... And, and, and I don't know how to undo a nuclear explosion, explosion when critical mass has been reached. Because there's no evidence it's got, that, that there's any way of reversing it. There's no evidence anyone wants to reverse it. No. In fact... I mean, I've long thought the only way to reverse this is through the truth, but the truth doesn't matter anymore. I mean, it's, there's so many examples, but even silly... Well, not silly, but little things. I don't know if you saw it this week. So, of course, this week was the 7th of July, so it was the anniversary of the 7-7 murders in London. Um, and the BBC ran one story about it, about one guy who was killed, and said, the, the gentleman who was killed when his bus exploded. You know, yeah. and it's it's just so, so exploding buses are killing people now. It didn't even say he was murdered. You know, what, what, why does the truth, where is the truth anymore? The truth doesn't matter. The BBC is, uh, is a prime culprit here and it, it does it repeatedly. Uh, and uh, across the media, you, you are aware that uh, the, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the BBC had a headline saying 
27 policemen injured in a largely peaceful rally. Yeah. rally. This was by uh, Black Lives Matter. Right? 20, that's like saying uh, 13 demonstrators are shot dead in a largely de peaceful demonstration in, in Derry on January the 30th, 1972. Yeah. Because for the most part, most soldiers didn't shoot. For the most part, nobody threw a stone. For the most part, people listened silently to the speakers. So you could say Bloody Sunday was actually quite a peaceful yeah. day, apart from you know, the, the you know, departure from the norm, but otherwise it was a peaceful day. To, to maintain the lie, the BBC doctored a video for the news which showed uh, a man with a plank hitting a police officer. That footage was doctored to remove the, the man hitting the police officer with a plank. So 27 police officers being injured doesn't mean it wasn't a peaceful demonstration, according to the BBC, and to make sure that it was peaceful. The BBC that had me as the world-famous misogynist and anti-Semite deleted the image that proved that this was not a peaceful demonstration. Here was a man hitting a police officer with a plank. Now, it's not coincidental that the Metropolitan Police have simply folded, uh, and now the, the Cressida Dick, if that's the correct pronunciation, the Met um, Chief Commissioner, has given individual police officers the right, as we nowadays say, instead of saying genuflection, which is the way I was raised to use the term, give, give the knee to Black, Black Lives demonstrations, yeah. Black Lives Matter demonstrations. This is madness. Policemen do not take initiatives on matters like this. There is a policy and that policy is enforced. How is any police officer not meant to give a knee or genuflect if his colleagues or her colleagues are already doing so? Yeah, and it then it's not possible. It's not possible for a police force to behave in a uniform way if the uniformity is not uniform. It's pretty simple, isn't it? it? Well, it, it is, and it's it's again, it's it's control, it's fear, it's cowardice as well through all the individuals. But um, you know, and they say the Black Lives Matter movement in the UK, their their leaders are very clearly. There are videos of them saying it. They're they're, they're, they have it written down where they state, we are a Marxist organization, we are yeah. anti-capitalist, yeah. we're anti-family, we are this. This is easily found and let out, but the BBC, among others, completely ignore it. It's not just the BBC amongst others, it's just universally across the media. This truth is, is, is um, denied. And the anti-family thing is a real serious thing. It's because that, that Marx and, and Lenin and all of those lunatics who want to destroy the world knew that the, the basis of, of, of society is the family. It's not the state taking control of, of children. That's, that lay, way lies ruin. It's what the Israelis discovered because originally the, the children were raised in kibbutzim and they were raised in nurseries and it just simply didn't work. The parents were separated from the children, the parents didn't like it, and the children didn't like it, and they reintegrated the family. The experiment, wherever it's been tried, has been, it's been failed. Tried in Kampuchea, uh, tried in Vietnam, everywhere tried in the Soviet Union. It doesn't work. Yet these people, they don't mind failed experiments. They don't mind the price of ignoring wisdom, inherited wisdom. They don't mind seeing people suffer because they want to have another go of putting their burnt hands back in the fire. They don't mind that because it's not going to be their fire. It's not going to be their hand. Or will be their fire, but it's not going to be their hand. These people are uh, addicted to causing misery to other people because they don't pay the price. Yeah. 
That's the important thing about all these ideologists. They personally never pay the price because they are they live in their intellectual garrisons, in their ivory towers and universities, which is, has been the source of most of this filth. And whenever, if an engineer failed the way that uh, these ideological zealots fail, then they, that engineer wouldn't ever be allowed to build a bridge or build a hospital or build a school. But no, these people's ideas, they completely fail time after time after time. All Marxist, Marxist experiments have failed. Yet here they are again, trying to do it again. And, because, and they're still, most of them are employed by the state. You know, they are, they are employees of the state. Their pensions are assured. Their existence is assured. All that's required of them is to talk rubbish. And if they're influential enough amongst the more gullible of their students, they'll be very successful over a generation. And this is exactly what's happened. I, I have the misfortune of being, or the good fortune or whatever, however way you want to describe it, of being a, a child of the 1960s. And I embraced all the mad ideas uh, that are now bringing ruin upon the world. Now, as it happens, I think I saw sense and have walked away from the nonsense that has brought misery to Vietnam and Cambodia and and Laos and, and the communist uh, uh, Soviet Union and China and North Korea and so on and so forth. But m an awful lot of my generation went on to be university lecturers and it is their pupils now who are ruling the world. It, you know, relatively youthful leaders uh, do not have the spine to take on these forces. They do not have the, the willingness or they don't have the intellectual coherence to take on uh, what are really dangerous forces. And that the vector that enables all this is, is it's a vector, it's not a passive thing, is, is cowardice. Yeah. It's because so many people will be drawn into the mob. And a coward in a mob isn't a coward anymore. He or she is a very brave person and could administer the kind of beating that they'd never do otherwise. How else could all those people who have attacked me three years ago at the end of this month not have said a word about me over the previous 20 years? All of the newspaper articles that attacked me, all of the radio programs and television programs denouncing me, well, none of them said a word in the previous 20 years. But that week and that fortnight and that month and that two months, because it lasted two months, I, I was suddenly an easy target. Yeah. They, they, they felt free, uh, not merely free to, do, to attack me, they felt, felt able to do. They were empowered. Why wasn't, were they empowered? Because I was on a heap, in a heap, on the ground, with people around me yeah. kicking. Right. So suddenly we had an access of, of, of courage. Okay, well, look, Kevin, we're almost out of time. Terrible for you, but um, your memoirs then, are they coming? Yes, uh, we hope to get them published in September. I should tell you that, um, you know, RTE Radio, that's Radio Chadwick Sharon, the national broadcaster, paid for by me and you, by license money, called me a Holocaust denier. And uh, they refused to correct that when I sent the solicitor's letters and finally settled in November. They said they put out an apology, said it was wrong. Apart from being a Holocaust denier, I had repeatedly attested to the horrors of the Holocaust and that they were paying me substantial damages. RTE News never reported that. The Guardian called me a Holocaust denier, still call, calls me a Holocaust denier, and I can't sue them now. So the, the, and the Irish Times never reported the finding. We sent them a statement. So newspapers not even reporting the news. RTE News didn't report. It cost you and me and everyone else. Yes, that's right. I, I was subsidising my own damages. Yes. And then, then my legal cost as well. And RTE's legal cost. Now, the Irish Times, we sent out the Irish Times a statement. The Irish Times didn't re re refer to this. 
Now, I don't mind the Irish Times not liking me. I don't want the Irish Times to like me. I don't want its <laughs> editor and its staff to like me. I just want them to tell the fucking yeah, truth. Exactly. Well, hey. That's all the newspapers are meant to do. Tell the fucking well, truth. If, if, and, and they won't even do that. There isn't a better way to end this. I really don't know, because that is, that is perfect. Just tell the fucking truth. And that's, I, at the end of the day, me and you, as people who think, you know, who are libertarian and want justice and truth. That's all we really want, isn't it? The truth. Yeah, we're not going to get it. Okay. We're not going to get it. Listen, thank you very much, Kevin. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully we can talk again sometime. I really appreciate I it. I enjoyed it, Kevin. It's lovely talking to you. And thank you for giving me so much time and space. And I hope I didn't take up too I, much time in you, my little... You did not. Um, I'm happy to have had you. So thank you very much, Kevin Mark.